Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Being called a political independent has a certain prestige attached to it. Maybe you've seen a bumper sticker that says, I vote for the person, not the party. Maybe you identify as an independent yourself. But what does it mean for people to call themselves independents in an age of deepening partisanship? Here to help us tackle this question is Yana Krupnikov, professor of political science at Stony Brook University. She's the co-author with Samara Klar of the book Independent Politics, How American Disdain for Parties Has Led to Political Inaction, which came out with Cambridge University Press in 2016. And she's the author of numerous other scholarly articles in the field of political psychology. Welcome, Yana. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so glad you could join us. Um, your work has been so um, so influential in this in this area, and we've had these really interesting conversations. I know a number of us on Twitter over the past couple of weeks about who identifies as an independent and what it means for our institutions. But I want to start at kind of a basic level with some questions about who who are independents. Are there any distinct patterns that make them different from other voters? What percentage of the electorate do they represent? Is this number growing or shrinking? And then I want to get into a little bit more about uh, your findings about independence. So when we think about independence, this might sound incredibly obvious. These are typically people who, for whatever reason, are not going to give us a party. But why they aren't giving us a party can actually vary quite a bit across people. Some people might actually have absolutely no connection to either party. They might dislike both parties' policies. They might kind of like a grab bag of policies. And they are actually genuinely um, unaffiliated. Then there are going to be some other people who actually do have an attachment to a party, uh, but the attachment is mostly in the sense that they they agree with one party's policies. They might have voted for that party literally their whole lives. They might have never cast a ballot for anyone from a different party, but for whatever reason, at a particular point in time, in a particular survey, they don't want to tell you that they have an affiliation with that party. And that also might be for a variety of reasons. It might be because they believe it's better to be independent. It might be because they just don't want to have that conversation. It is so much easier to say I'm independent than to give a party and kind of engage in that partisan discussion. Or it might actually be that something has happened in the news. Something might have happened with a politician from a particular party. Somebody, something might have happened with the party as a whole that they really don't feel comfortable in this particular survey telling you that they are a member of that party. And so because the reason why people say they're independent differs, kind of the numbers are also going to fluctuate. Sometimes there's going to be a lot of independence because a particular party will have done something that leads a lot of people to be kind of a little bit hedgy about saying they belong to that party. And then these numbers might shrink. Typically, though, the people that have this attachment to a party who just don't want to tell you about it will be most likely to describe themselves as leaners, which means that they will tell you initially they're independent. And then when you ask them about it later, they'll say, I actually lean toward the Republicans or I actually lean toward the Democrats. And it's these people where we see the most movement 
though we have seen some really slight increases in the number of people who call themselves what is typically in political science, pure independence. So people who say they're independent and say they do not lean toward either party. Do we have any, um, just as a follow-up, any kind of demographic patterns or anything in terms of who calls themselves independent, or is it is it mostly just a psychological profile? Typically, you have more younger people who will call themselves independent. Um, that's something that has been true for a while, but I think more, more recently, it has actually become even more uh, more clear Typically, this younger group will go more into the kind of pure, non-leaning, independent category. In terms of other demographic types of characteristics, oftentimes people that don't vote are, are more likely to be pure independence on a demographic characteristic or a political trait. Um, but one thing that often emerges, especially amongst these people who are pure independents, is that they will have a dissatisfaction um, with their surroundings, a dissatisfaction with just almost life in general, not even just politics. Again, that's not a demographic thing, but it's something that unites particularly this most unusual group, which is independents who don't lean toward either party. So that that's really... That's really interesting, and you know, I want to pick up on on this point about the the pure independence and you know in, independence generally, because I think there's uh, kind of this idea among a lot of people that more you know in fact in fact independence is a good thing. The idea for this for this episode kind of came from the fact that I uh, picked up on the, the latest Gallup that had 50% of Americans identifying as independents, and I posted it on Twitter, and there was just a, a, a remarkable wave of responses to that observation. And I, you know, I, I, I said it was a bad thing. Uh, I said it was a troubling sign for American politics. And you know, there were a number of people who responded and said, oh, no, actually, this is a great thing that so many people are finally declaring their independence from political parties. And I think that there's sort of this myth of independence as being these kind of reasonable people who, you know, don't get too caught up in, in party and can kind of look objectively at the political scene and uh, see what's good for the country, not what's good for some particular party. But that's not what I take away from your book. Uh, in fact, I, I take away that, I mean, and one of the, the uh, key findings for me from the book was uh, that uh, partisans, uh, or sorry, independents are people who actually don't like compromise very much. And I, I want to quote an extended paragraph because I think it's, uh, it's, it's actually uh, quite insightful. And I'm going to start the quote here. The, the people who avoid partisanship are a political candidate's worst nightmare. They do little to offer support, they refuse to admit their support publicly, and they are unlikely to convince their social networks to support a particular party position or policy. Meanwhile, they make grand overtures uh, about partisan compromise, yet go increasingly frustrated when their party, the very same party they are ashamed to admit they prefer, bends in any way to the will of the opposition even when this is the only way the political process can move forward. These voters want their party to engage in the very same behavior that they claim drove them away from partisanship in the first place. So I, I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on that and you know, think more broadly about the, the role of political independence 
in basically their effect on the overall quality of democracy. And you know, also beyond that, what does democracy look like when almost half the people refuse to uh, identify with a political uh, party? And is this the ceiling? I mean, can this can this number grow even higher? I'm going to kind of take a step back and I'm going to begin in kind of my favorite place, which is survey research. But I think it's important to begin with survey research on this much larger question about what independents mean for democracy. And it's important to begin with survey research because we have to think about how people are describing themselves and, and what it means to say that you're independent. And I think we can think about it in two ways. One is that people are giving us their genuine, true, kind of sense of self. And if that's the case, right, that would have to be true for this argument that people are finally abandoning parties and finally abandoning partisanship. On the other hand, um, survey response is often really expressive, which means that people are telling us almost not necessarily the best versions of themselves, but the versions of themselves that send up a point or the versions of themselves that they think are most impressive. And so oftentimes when people call themselves independents, they are giving us the versions of themselves that are gonna be most impressive, that are gonna be most politically impressive. And what's politically impressive? It's politically impressive to say that you are above partisanship. You're better than all these other people, um, especially when the party you would have picked has done something that you, or maybe you're kind of actually even a little embarrassed about, or you're not embarrassed by it, but you know other people are going to think poorly about it, so you don't just you just want don't want to talk about it. So when we see kind of I think it was fifty percent on Gallup say they're independent, we get into this odd space, right? And you actually Lee mentioned this myth of the independent voter, which is a title of kind of the book that came before us um, and a lot of the work by political scientist, David Magleby. Um, we think there are these people out there who are above the fray, who are nonpartisan, um, but really it could just be people signaling something about politics. So the question then becomes, what is it that people are trying to signal about politics? And I think the first step here is it actually could be a signal that people are dissatisfied with political elites. When people think about political parties, they're thinking of politicians. They're thinking of who, who is on the news representing those parties. There's, for example, a really great paper by Jamie Druckmann and Matt Lewandowski that shows that when we measure things like polarization, we measure how people feel about politics, we are really tapping perceptions of political elites. That's actually what these measures are getting. As numbers of independents fluctuate, I think we're seeing a dislike of elites of both parties. Sometimes one party's elites dislike that party and they'll say they're independent. Sometimes the other party's elites, uh, sometimes the other party's voters will dislike those elites and say they're independent. But I think independent expression is really a reflection of what people see of parties in the news, of who they see representing these parties. So for me, these large fluctuations are in some sense a dissatisfaction. Is this dissatisfaction a problem for democracy? What it means, I think that's a really open question. My sense is that when you have a lot of people profoundly dissatisfied with the elites of a party that they would otherwise identify with, 
that hints at a broader issue for that party. But of course, the problem then becomes when, when you have kind of surveys, when you have kind of variations in who takes the study, when you have variation in how they define themselves, we don't entirely know what that's going to mean, for example, electorally or in a future election or future party identifications. So I'd like to jump in here on this conversation, this exchange between you and Lee, because as I was reading your book and right there in uh, the chapter one, in your first chapter, something jumped out at me. And so I guess my question is, what does the rising number of independents reveal about our politics more broadly? And you have right at the very beginning, you, you write, quote, the endless conflicts and the seemingly insurmountable disagreements between parties have led many Americans to dislike partisans. As a result, people who hold clear partisan preferences have gone undercover. And I find this really interesting because when I look at politics, one of the troubling concerns, one of the troubling things that I see, and it's very bipartisan in my opinion, is that, or even tripartisan or whatever, I mean, whatever we're calling it these days, that we generally, when we think about conflict, we think about, or politics, we think about conflict as a negative thing, as a bad thing. And does the rising number of independents in our society, does that highlight, is that another way to get at uh, this um, this trend towards seeing political conflict as something that is unacceptable and distasteful and something that we have to expunge from politics in order for us to have uh, compromise, which I find a completely uh, ridiculous view, but it's an understandable view. But what do you, what do you make of this? So I think this is a question that hits at almost the very definition of what is politics. And it also hits at this definition of what is polarization and what is debate. And I think here, Matt Levandusky's work um, actually speaks really well. Um, so Matt finds that there are shifts in how politics is covered. So before, I think it's kind of 1990s, maybe a little earlier, you see coverage of debate as a sense of, well, Democrats think this, but Republicans think this. And it's kind of covered in a very almost natural way. So this kind of idea of exactly what you're suggesting, that conflict is totally natural to politics. These are two parties. They have different positions. They have these different views. And then um, uh, uh, Matt shows that there's a shift in the tone that's used about the idea of polarization. So it doesn't just become, well, these two parties think different things but it becomes, uh, polarization becomes a media topic in and of itself. And I think that's actually a really important shift, that it's not just that these two parties have different ideas and they're kind of hashing them out, but that the divide and difference is so profound that it's beyond issue. It's, it's like this huge kind of gap in the way that people perceive the world. And I think that's where you get into this idea that conflict is bad because conflict doesn't really become about debating the best issue position or debating um, a, a way of compromising or debating a legislative bill. It 
becomes portrayed as something that's so insurmountable. And I think that's what Samara and I are trying to get at in the book. It's not that independence, uh, people who identify as independents necessarily want like politics to be this Pollyanna version where everyone super agrees and nobody has any different positions. But when conflict seems just completely insurmountable, like there's literally no way these two parties can ever come to an agreement on anything, um, and it's not even just issue agreement, it's a kind of a worldview, that's when you get a lot of people kind of being really dissatisfied with politics. And I think the kind of coverage pattern that Matt Lewandowski points out is something that has become, I would argue, more stark in recent years. There is this uh, great paper in uh, the Journal of Communication with Joanna Dunaway and Josh Darr, which shows that the most extreme Congress members um, actually get the most airtime. So the Congress you see uh, on the, in the news um, is kind of what you think Congress is like, even though it's not actually what might be happening. Um, there is a great research in communication generally by, by Shannon McGregor that's showing that journalists are often searching for public opinion on Twitter where kind of some of the most extreme uh, partisans happen to just hang out. So the image that we get is kind of in line with this idea that we're not just seeing debate as a natural state of politics, but we're seeing divisions that could actually never ever be bridged that are much wider than anything that we would think of as let's say deliberative debate or political discussion. So I want to kind of branch off of this and and talk a little bit about some of the findings in in the book and kind of the the way they relate to our I guess like our social norms or our social environment um, with regard to partisanship because on the one hand I see a kind of version of of this general literature on parties and political independence and how people perceive parties that's really about as we were just saying before like partisanship conflict then there's a part that's about distrust of elites but then there's this other part that seems to be rooted in some other kinds of norms about what it means to be a partisan one of the quotations that i i use from your book and in, in talks that i've given is a um one of the qualitative answers you had which was something like belonging to a herd is not part of my style and also just the way in which people perceive the social desirability of independence. So I taught, I actually taught like a Vox piece that you guys wrote in this, in my political parties class in the fall of 2019. And it like, there's something in there about people perceiving independence as being more attractive. And I have to say, I've never had students write something so consistently on their midterms in their answers. And I was like, what have I unleashed on the bars of Milwaukee? But that's obviously a before time story. But, you know, that really stood out to me, the way in which people really see partisanship as being fundamentally not socially desirable in a way that, that seems to me to be kind of about broader social norms than some of these more political factors like conflict and distrust of elites and seem to me to be more rooted in this, this sort of notion of, of herd mentality and of maybe even things that are deeper in American political culture. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it, it totally makes sense. And and I would say that I could talk about um, social norms and the social context of politics for the next conservatively for the next four hours. Uh, but I definitely won't. But I think this social norms and this the social context of what we're talking about is really, really important. There is going to be 
this key idea that some people believe that being independent is good. And I think that actually makes a lot of sense, right? We all want to seem like we are open-minded, like we are people who make our own decisions, like we are people who can kind of think for ourselves and so forth. And I think that's what in some sense is driving part of this identification. You can do two things at once. You cannot say that you're part of this party whose elites you might actually not really like at this point. And you get to say that you are independent, which is like a bonus. You get to say that you're something that's really, really, really good. But I think I see this idea of social norms and the social context as part of kind of this larger conversation about the idea that a lot of what happens to us in politics and a lot of what we do politically is in large part because of the social context around us. And I think of kind of this fantastic book by Ishmael White and Cheryl Laird, right, where they also talk about the importance of social norms for uh, African-Americans in terms of their partisan identifications. And there's kind of a lot of this work on social networks and how people can influence others. So I think a lot of what we see is basically people who might not necessarily have the clearest political view, um, who aren't really thinking about politics as much as let's say like I am or everyone else on this podcast is or the people I'm going to see on Twitter, but are using the cues they see around them from others to figure out how they can fit in in this increasingly complicated political world, right? Politics is um, actually, we're just talking about politics seems so conflictual that people look to others to figure out the best way to navigate something that often seems incredibly fraught. Yeah, I think we, you know, there's a broad American anti-partisan tradition, obviously goes back to the framers who famously were against parties, was a, a sort of through line in the progressive era that, you know, we should be above party politics and we should uh, valorize expertise, which is, you know, about what's the right thing to do as opposed to the right thing for the party. And there, you know, it's consistently been this idea that there is this sort of one right answer that if you just look at things objectively, if you put country first, if you take off your partisan hat, to use my favorite cliche, that you will somehow find what the right answer is. And that's a, a particular view of politics, as, as James is saying, that is sort of, you know, consensus oriented and doesn't recognize the fact that politics is inherently conflictual. Now, that, that seems to me a, a somewhat uniquely American vision of politics. Um, and yeah, you know, I wonder what you think of that. And, you know, also, you know, I think there's something about America just being a two-party system in that when you have a, a two-party system and you have a kind of binary nature to political conflict, there's no real opportunity to see different shades and different different perspectives beyond this sort of you know, binary conflict, which I think turns people off. So how much do you think is is unique to America? And if so, do either of these two explanations resonate with you? Uh, so I think the two-party aspect of American politics is, of course, going to be really crucial here. Um, and I think that's, in some sense, 
what allows people to kind of identify as independent, basically not pick either party because they don't really like their party at this particular survey point. But for kind of political scientists and politicians to sort of depend on these people to return to the party from whence they came, right? So if somebody identifies as a leaning Republican, um, so they say they're independent and they say they lean Republican, we can glean from that particular moment that they might be displeased with the Republican Party at a given point in time. But because they're probably, you know, they don't have any other options, they're probably not going to vote for a Democrat, we're going to assume they're essentially going to return to the Republicans come voting time. And that, I think, is the essence of people's characterization of independence as, as not real. Because when it comes time for voting, they basically return to their particular party, even if in a survey they did identify for a brief point in time as independent. I think this other idea that there's something American about being independent, um, I think, you know, I think that's, that's really interesting. In our uh, work on the book, um, and I think this also comes out in the 1992 book, The Myth of the Independent Voter, you see these ideas of independence being a benefit kind of emerging throughout American history. I think the myth of the independent voter, and I think we do as well, cites research on American textbooks that early on suggest that independent voters are really kind of the best sort of voters, that we should strive to be independent, that we should strive to not really think of uh, belonging to a party, but thinking, just as you said, of, of, of really what's best. I sometimes think, though, that this notion of um, avoiding partisanship undermines the benefits of parties. If we think about it from kind of a pure cost-benefit approach, learning about politics is incredibly costly. It takes up a ton of time that most people actually don't have in a given election. And in off election years, like people just don't necessarily have the time to follow everything about politics. I think it would be almost beneficial to acknowledge that party labels do some good here. Uh, party labels allow people who otherwise would not be able to do so make choices there's a benefit to categorizing politics in this particular way. So I think this discussion of, you know, what is, you know, I'm either going to think independently or I think I'm either going to think in partisan terms is a discussion that is based um, on an almost idealized voter that doesn't necessarily exist and actually can't really exist given the constraints on most people's lives and most people's days, right? People, I think, are benefited by the fact that they do have parties and that there are clear partisan labels that help them make political choices. I actually want to, I'm going to let James talk, but I want to sort of follow on this point because I think, I think about this a lot because I live in a state that has a lot of nonpartisan elections. Um, and this is, I just, I think about this constantly, not just because I'm then looking when I have to vote in a nonpartisan election for cues about, you know, what who I should vote for for state superintendent of education or for a judicial position when there aren't these labels. 
um, including we have nonpartisan primaries. So there's a lot of voting that you're doing without a lot of labels. But it's not just that even as a political science professor, I don't necessarily have time or enough information to do that um, in an informed way, but it actually creates an opportunity for elites to obscure their connections and their positions, right? That's what really has struck me as you look, and I think people have done research on this in the like referendum space about how you can like, you call a referendum something that sounds really good, but it's actually sponsored by like the oil lobby or what, you know, that's where I, I think this really speaks to some of the questions we were getting at before with regard to the role of political elites. And I think that there's this turned into in true academic fashion more of a comment than a question um but i I think there's really something to the dissatisfaction that people feel with institutions and i think that political scientists don't always take this seriously enough in the area of parties that there's there are reasons why people are frustrated with political parties i think it's because they haven't delivered much in the way of responsiveness but on the other hand that like strengthening these connections between political elites and their constituents can actually allow for more transparency. And when we make kind of anti-partisan reforms, that tends to work in against transparency. I don't know if that's something you want to, to comment on, Yana, or if that's just like a rant we can all pretend I didn't do. But I think about it a lot because of the voting situation here in Wisconsin. You know, so I, I agree with the point that there is, I think there's often kind of this mistaking of people disliking the elites that their parties have selected, that that's often mistaked as parties are useless. But I think to dismiss the parties as essentially bad or, or not useful is to actually deny this reality of people's lives that people aren't political scientists. Uh, they they aren't following politics all the time. And they they shouldn't be following politics all the time, given the constraints of, of their lives. That like there's so many limitations that kind of surround people that it's a privilege to have the time to actually investigate and research politics. It's a privilege that a lot of people don't have. And in those cases, I think the party label is is quite beneficial. Well, thankfully, people aren't all political scientists. And but judging from some of what you read in political science journals these days, it appears that political scientists aren't spending a lot of time following politics either, in my opinion, but maybe that's a low blow. Um, but no, I think this is an important, this again, I think uh, aligns very nicely with what I was thinking and what I wanted to ask you about, which is the consequences of this trend for our politics writ large. Because, and I think to Lee's point, the framers certainly didn't like parties, right? I mean, Jefferson says something to the effect of, if I have to go to heaven with a party, I'm not going. I mean, that's a pretty intense comment. But he ultimately does what? He starts a party. Why? Because he needs to disrupt the, the coalition in government that Hamilton helped form of the Federalists, right? So he and Madison, Jimmy Madison, start a party. Madison writes in Federalist 10, it's even on a theoretical basis. He says, the regulation of these various and interfering interests forms the principal task of modern legislation and involves the spirit of party and faction in the necessary and ordinary operations of government. And parties are absolutely, I mean, as much as we find them distasteful, they are absolutely critical. They help make our system work, right? We all know this. The government structure makes it hard to do things. We have federalism. We've got separation of powers. And parties compensate for these challenges. They help voters to make sense of politics in all of the different places where it occurs. They lend order on a continual basis to our politics. They set the agenda and to varying degrees define alternatives in these formal institutions like Congress. 
But even outside of government, they are the mediating institutions. They're intermediaries. They link citizens with government officials and make policy, who make policy. And they serve as our accountability mechanism, which is absolutely critical in a democracy. They help citizens to replace government officials with whom they disagree. And if I look at just in terms of turnout, which is a great way to kind of paint this picture, and I know turnout's kind of increased a little bit in recent years, but if you look in 1824, turnout's 26.9%. Van Buren comes along, right? The little magician who may be shorter than Madison. I'm not sure. They're both pretty short in American politics here. But 1828, turnout jumps to 57.6% after Van Buren starts to form with Thomas Ritchie and others, the first mass political party. And it keeps on increasing. And then in 1840, when the second party system is firmly firmly in place and the Whigs are on the scene now with Henry Clay, turnout jumps to 80%, 80%. And it hovers around 80%, a little bit above, a little bit below for the rest of the century up until the progressive era, when you have reforms come in that make it harder for parties to mobilize the electorate and to do the things that they're doing for good reason, admittedly, right? And then all of a sudden turnout goes down. And so thinking about the benefits of parties, thinking about the things that parties do, what do you make of this this trend? What are the consequences, the broader consequences for how our system works? And is this, in fact, related to a lot of the dysfunction that we're seeing right now? So my sense, well... I'm going to kind of go on, on, on to kind of, I like to throw a lot. I like to throw a lot. Just like unpack that in like 20 seconds. No. (laughs) Um, Okay. So I I think there, there's a couple of things happening. So one, on the one kind of point here, it's clear that parties are beneficial for, for turnout, though. I think that does come with costs. Um, Going, going like really old school political science to Rosenstone and Hanson, um, there's this finding that people are most likely to turn out when they are mobilized to do so. And so parties are doing a lot of mobilization, trying to get people to vote. But of course, the parties are going to only mobilize people who they believe it is motiv- uh, beneficial for them to mobilize. So the turnout that's associated with clear partisan efforts, I think, does come at a cost for who ends up voting. Nevertheless, I think there is some benefit to this attachment, even if it's psychological. You're most likely to turn out if you think that the election has incredibly high stakes. Um, I think that's part of the reason why we see such high turnout in 2020 is, is the stakes of this election. And the people who are most likely to see high stakes in um, an electoral context are the people who have these very, very strong partisan attachments. For them, it really matters who ends up winning. Uh, there was a recent report by the Knight Foundation that I served as an advisor on where the Knight Foundation interviewed kind of a whole bunch of, a large kind of sample of non-voters and a whole bunch of voters as well. And one thing that emerges with these kind of chronic non-voters is that they don't really have an attachment to a political party. But more than that, they don't necessarily perceive that anything good will happen if one party wins over the other. Um, And so why would you turn out and vote if you actually don't necessarily think that that will matter in the slightest? So I think parties, in a way, um, give people, aside from a candidate, a sort of brand to feel an attachment to um, as a way of um, feeling that the election has higher stakes. 
So then I think um, if I'm kind of characterizing the second idea here is kind of dysfunction and dissatisfaction with institutions related to the way that parties are currently behaving or the way the, the, party, the, the party positions in American government right now. I think part of what's happening to return to an earlier conversation here is that coverage of politics I think has turned to sometimes really the most extreme that the parties have to offer. And I think if that's the image of parties that people see in front of them as they look at politics, um, as they hear the news, it becomes really difficult not to be dissatisfied for certain people. In recent research with Sam Clark, Jamie Druckmann, Matt Lewandowski, and John Ryan, we find that um, people really think the worst of politics and people think the worst of parties when they are kind of left to imagine these really extreme partisans who constantly, like constantly, constantly, constantly talk about politics to everyone. So I think what's happening in American government right now, um, in American politics generally, I would say, is this conflation of what is a political party? What is the purpose of political party? And who happens to be in a political party with who actually speaks for a given political party? And because we have a ton of media coverage, we have a ton of social media, we have a ton of people speaking for political parties. And I think that really muddies the way that people perceive partisanship and it muddies the role of parties in American politics. Um, I don't know that that necessarily answers your question going back to the historical trend, but I think to sum up, yes, party are benef parties are beneficial for mobilization, but we've come to a difficult position where it's, I think, more difficult for, for parties to wrangle and figure out exactly who speaks for them, which makes it more difficult for parties to function in politics. Yeah, that I mean that that all makes sense to me as a scholar of of political parties. I want to close up by asking you about the evolving political context. So you and and Sam wrote this book during the I guess the Obama years, which where we saw the emergence of this really um, intense and and very kind of heavily symbolized party conflict. Obviously, that continued and intensified in the Trump years, and now we've moved into this interesting space where it seems like the kind of focal point of party extremism is less in the presidency. And, you know, Biden was, I think, initially seen as someone who was kind of like a less extreme and more reasonable kind of, of Democrat. And I know those are really loaded. But also we're seeing just like this very similarly polarized um, DC partisan environment. And we've got this like major COVID relief bill that, that was passed without Republican support. Um, and it seems like, and it seems like the administration in some ways has moved past like this kind of rhetoric of, of compromise. And I'm curious if you see anything really relevant in this, in this evolving context, are we moving more and more toward this kind of highly partisan perception of politics? Are we moving possibly in a in a different direction after things peak in the Obama and Trump years? Do you have any sense of kind of like what what the public's reaction is to the 
to the changing political situation? So I will say I, I just finished um, a book manuscript with John Ryan that kind of looks at uh, this changing partisan dynamic and what it means for people. And it is kind of a sad book <laughs> in a way, um, even though we didn't intend it to be. But I do think we're, we're heading toward almost two political views. I think we're, there's, this, there's a group of people who have become much more polarized, uh, much more political. And I think what we see in government is actually a reflection of the preferences of those people. Um, these are the people that you can count on to um, kind of go to social media and be kind of hyper-political. Um, and those are the people that you can count on to really care about what's what's happening in even things that are much smaller than the COVID relief bill. And so I think part of this really polarized environment is this possibility that our politicians, elites, and I think even journalists, pundits, and so forth, are responding to this hyper-polarized, very political group of voters, which totally makes sense because those are the people that are easiest to see. They're the people who seem to have the most political voice. But I think that there are kind of other people out there who have begun to almost um, exclude themselves from politics. These people might vote, and I think a lot of them did vote in 2020, but I think these are the people where you're gonna see this dissatisfaction uh, with parties, this kind of uncertainty about what's happening, um, and this belief that any conflict, to, to return to uh, James's earliest question, the conflict is bad, that they're gonna, not be able to see conflict as a natural aspect of political debate, but rather as a signal of a really kind of critical problem, which makes sense because the conflict they're seeing is almost not necessarily political debate, but kind of this hyper-polarized, hyper-partisan conflict. So my prediction, even though I really dislike making predictions because I, um, you know, I dislike being wrong, <laughs> um, is that we're not just gonna see these partisan divides, but there's gonna be these sharp divides in who sees themselves as political and who sees themselves as engaged in politics. And part of it is a political context of hyper-partisanship and hyper-polarization amongst elites and amongst the most active uh, members of the party in um, kind of amongst ordinary voters. So what, what you're describing here is this uh, re really depressing, reinforcing feedback loop, or what I would call a, a doom loop, in which uh, politics becomes more polarized. More and more people see themselves as not part of that and kind of check out and call themselves independents and kind of want things to be nonpartisan or just disengaged. Politics becomes more and more captured by the partisan warriors who want the most conflict, which then further disengages people. So is there an off-ramp? Where, where does this all take us? Yeah. Um, so I will say that John and I struggled with that as we were completing our book because it felt like it had to be more hopeful than just kind of, uh, well, things are kind of bad. The end. Hope you enjoyed the book. And Kind of thinking it through, I think there, I see kind of a couple of critical things that are really important here. So one thing is, is that in, in some of our research, and this is research with Jamie Druckmann, Sam Clark, Matt Lewandowski, and John, we see that reminding people of 
who the modal partisan is, which is somebody who doesn't really talk about politics and isn't all that extreme. Like reminding people of these, of these modal partisans actually makes people feel better. It makes them feel better about politics. It makes them feel better about the parties. So how can we possibly implement that? That's where the tough part kind of comes in. I think one aspect of it is going to be, have to be media coverage. So who gets the most attention from journalists? Who is going to get a lot of focus in the press? Um, returning to the paper with uh, Joanna Dunaway and Josh Dar, they make this really compelling argument that if news just reminded people, this isn't, this is not the modal congressperson, um, that would be quite beneficial. And, and I agree with them. I think that's a really important point. And I think the same could be true when covering ordinary voters, right? Even if you found somebody who is willing to go on camera or on record in a newspaper saying something that's quite extreme, I think it'd be, you know, it's important to place those people into context. Is this the modal partisan or is this the person you found at a rally? But I think it's always more difficult to give suggestions to actual elites who I think could be better off widening their perspective on who they believe they are serving. So that's, I think, the hard part. Yeah, well, that is hard. And I mean, the, those, I mean, the, the people who make interesting stories are the people who are most conflictual. I mean, there's a reason why Matt Gates gets the coverage that he does because he's interesting. So, I mean, it, it does seem, uh, picking on something that you, you said before, that that it that the, the two-party system itself is contributing to this. So, I mean, I won't be surprised to listeners of this program or my co-host that I think that if we move to a, more of a multi-party system, we would eliminate some of these problems. Uh, I mean, not not entirely, but that you know, the, it, we'd give people who are dissatisfied with one of the two more more options to pick a party. We'd engage more people. The parties themselves would be trying to engage more people because, as a result of a proportional voting system that would create a multi-party system, more voters would matter, and that you know that the fluid nature of conflict in a multi-party system would take away the sort of binary escalation that we're seeing now. I wonder if you think that solution holds any promise. I mean, it's obviously difficult to implement, but so is changing how the entire media business operates. Yeah, I would say I would say both are actually pretty hard to implement, <laughs> uh, which, you know, is, is that's the best kind of solution, right? One that would require massive institutional changes to carry through. So I actually, you know, I would actually argue they would need to be if they were to be implemented, um, we'd have to think about two things. So one is, are the people who are dissatisfied united politically, right? Are they gonna be united politically um, by a desire to vote for an additional party? Um, and that's just something I don't, I don't know, right? They're, they're fluctuating numbers of independents. Um, at any given point in time, a different thing could unite them. Oh, yeah, like I mean, I think, I think you'd need like, Four or five parties, right? I mean, yeah. not not just one, right? They're they're kind of all over the map. Yeah, and, but I think another kind of question is, if the most conflictual people are the most interesting, um, without changing the the news incentives, are we just going to end up with um, a situation in which the most conflictual people of all the new parties are essentially covered? And if that's the case, would we end up in the same 
kind of world and the same individual psychology of basically taking themselves out of conflict. And that's just something I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And I'm sure if there was a scholar of comparative politics on here, they could actually very easily tell you the answer to this. Um, I don't know what happens with media coverage in a multi-party system, right? Does something change about the way these people are covered? So I think we're going to have to leave it there with um, with these institute with institutional solutions that are difficult and challenging to implement. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you so much, Yana, for joining us. And uh, thank you, listeners, for, for tuning in. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Today, American democracy is facing some of its toughest tests. That's why listeners like you subscribe to Democracy in Danger, hosted by Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadianathan from the University of Virginia's Media Lab. Each week, Democracy in Danger features leading thinkers to discuss serious threats to democracy from the dark web and media disinformation to climate change, economic inequality, and violent extremism. In a recent episode, Will and Siva spoke with anthropologist and author Jason Hickel about the radical idea that, given real democratic power, people will choose not to grow the economy, but to shrink it. And this week, they discussed democracy under Putin with guest Serja Popovich. So listen to Democracy in Danger to become a more informed, engaged citizen. To listen, search Democracy in Danger on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.